0: Good evening everyone. I know others will be coming in for a while because we're normally starting at 7:15, but we said we wanted to uh, make sure we get plenty of time. so we're going to get moving right into our study. But I'll use these first few moments after we pray just to give a little bit of an overview. And um, a reminder once again that since this is the third evening, you'll have there are three sets of notes. Um, I recommend that you bring the notes back with you, maybe even put them into a binder and bring them uh, as they're accumulating week after week. That way, I can refer back to notes. But specifically, we're going to be, after a very, very brief um, review of where we've been, chapters 1 through 4, then we're going to be looking at the notes, and they were from last week, chapters 5 and 6, and then You're getting new this evening seven eight nine. So you want to make sure that you have notes all the way through nine. How many are understanding that um, there's a lot in the Book of Revelation, and in five weeks um, we're gonna we have to bring an overview. It's a flyover of this, but I'm giving you in hand notes that will supplement. There are a lot more notes than what we can cover on a Wednesday night, but also then conquest and glory. Um, is a lot more detailed in notes this is available in the back um, you can pick up a copy of that afterwards or you can grab it now if you'd like um, again conquest and glory is written I, I say towards the beginning that um, uh, you know being a pastor and a teacher is not what I do it's who I am this is my life and so I'm approaching the book of Revelation both as a teacher and I love to teach and um, very excited, uh, and right on the precipice of jumping into a new t- a new term at University of Valley Forge. That all starts up next week. It's hard to believe, but uh, so I love to teach, and a major part of the book is it's academic. It's it's word studies. It's getting deeper into um, the meaning of the text, um, but then there's also um, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor as well. That's what I love to do, and I want to make sure that Um, It's not just information, but it's information that changes our life. I like what somebody said. It's knowledge on fire. That's how it should be. We need to know the word of God, but you can just know things in your brain, and if it's not registering in your heart, um, we need the spirit of God to, to, to minister these truths to us. So let's pray and invite his presence. Father, we want this tonight. We want knowledge that's on fire, Father. We want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord as Peter's prayed grow in grace and the knowledge of the things of the Lord. We want this knowledge, Father, of your word, but, Father, we want it to be ministered by the Spirit of God because the same Holy Spirit that encountered your servant John in the island of Patmos 2,000 years ago, 1,900-plus years now, Father, is the same Holy Spirit who's here tonight, and I pray that you'd minister these truths to our heart. I pray that you'd hide me behind the cross, Lord, that you would be seen, as our teacher tonight. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Again, I think the approach that we're going to take is that if you have a pressing question that's pertinent to where we are as we're moving through the text, feel free to ask that question. We will spend time as we have the last two weeks to answer, address questions at the end of our evening. Um we'll wrap up after about an hour of study. And I'll hang in here as late as you'd like, and we'll 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 drill down on some questions at revelation, prophecy, eschatology, study of future things at large. But if you have a question specifically on verses as we're going through, please feel free to raise your hand and we'll address that because, Again, I can only hit an overview because we've got we've to keep pace here. We only have two more nights after this. But I want to know if there are specific questions that you have, and then I will address that. Okay? Is that fair? All right. Well, here we go. now. We have already let, let's let's remember where we've been in two weeks already. In Revelation chapter one, we have the introduction, and uh, the, the 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 centerpiece of chapter one is that John is on the island of Patmos. He's being punished by the Roman government because he's speaking the word of God. They don't know what to do with him. They tried to kill him. He miraculously uh, survives this, so they banish him to. Uh, It was like an ancient Alcatraz, okay, nobody's supposed to escape from here. And the Lord meets him there, and there's an encounter in chapter 1 with the resurrected Jesus. And John describes Jesus. If you recall, uh, and just a quick takeaway, Jesus is pictured as the great high priest, and he's walking in the midst of seven lampstands. And I see him as the high priest inspecting the oil in the lamps. He's looking over the churches. And remember that the number seven is going to be repeated over and over again. There are sets of sevens all the way through the book of Revelation. And Jesus is in the midst of seven lampstands. Those lampstands, he interprets it, represent churches. They're real-time churches. They were historic places. Cities where you can still go and see the ruins. Last week I showed you a, a few of the pictures from those. I, I, when I started the writing of this book about what, what year is this now? Five, six years ago? Something like that. I went to these different places and wanted to get just the sense. I stayed in Patmos. Wanted to understand. Wanted to see it for myself. And so these were real churches, but I believe they represent churches, the church at large, local churches, the church at large as well, of all time. Remember, the number seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Jewish mind. So when Jesus is inspecting and writing to those seven churches, he speaks to all of us. Now, there is something in chapter one I want to draw your attention to again, and that's in verse 19. You certainly want to have a Bible in hand. Chapter one and verse 19, Jesus himself gives us what amounts to what I see as a table of contents. It's a roadmap for this revelation. A lot of people look at the book of Revelation and most people avoid it because they really don't understand it, don't navigate it. I think there's a simple outline here. I'm not saying that it's simple to understand, but the Lord speaks of this. This is what you're going to write down, John. Write what you have seen. And that's what he's seeing in that moment. He's, he's encountering the risen Jesus. He's seeing Jesus in his resurrected glory. Okay, And then it says, and what is now and i believe that he is writing now refers to what happens in chapters 2 and 3 chapters 2 and 3 are seven messages to seven churches but we did see last week that they are not just to those original churches the wording is you if you read carefully the wording is such that to anyone who has an ear to hear let him listen to what god is saying to the churches he speaks to Sardis he says to the churches so in other words I am uh, Jesus is focusing upon a historical church in that day and pointing things out that would have registered remember we we looked at Laodicea and how they would have related to the things that Jesus was saying to the Laodicean church remember that the cold water the hot water the lukewarm we talked. talk they would have gotten that message but the message is timeless the message is not just for that local church. It is a message to all churches of all of time, okay, to, and to every single one of us. So I think that's important, but to me, what, when Jesus says the things that, in verse chapter 1, verse 19, what is now, I think he's referring to what, what Jesus is seeing in the churches, real time. And that's chapters 2 and 3, but... Last week, we, we got into chapter 4, and that's in, in, in chapter 1, of verse 19, when he says, "...and the things that are yet to take place, or will take place later." It's that phrase, metatauta. It's a Greek phrase, and I only use it because I will repeat that. You will see that phrase, which means, and next, or next to come, the next thing in this, in this sequence. It is a phrase that is used by John in the original language that tells us there are things yet to come. There are things yet to come. And I think that the things that are yet to come start at chapter 4, all the way through the end of the Book of Revelation. So, in other words, you have a three-part outline: the things that you're seeing right now, the things that are Jesus says that I'm seeing in the churches I inspect, and the things that are future yet to come. Let's go to chapter four, and there's a picture here. If we could have that of the stair, that staircase. That's, there's that call, and it reminds us that in chapter four and verse one, John hears a voice. It's the voice of the Lord calling him to come up into heaven. And what we need to understand is from chapter 4 on, through, through all the chapters that we will speak of tonight, um, and it will be right through chapter, all the way through chapter 16, the vantage point now is heaven. Once he's called into the throne room of God, as we saw last week, chapter 4, verse 1, come up here. That's what this represents. From here on, John's vantage point is the throne room of God. I want you to understand that. We also, and if I could have the next image, please, Pastor Matt. There was this rendition. Uh, This is an artist, a lady. It's a copyrighted picture. But I thought it was just a a very accurate depiction, I think. Uh, You know, the best that we can understand with a visual. Um, And here... If you remember, I just want to want you to re- recall some of the imagery that was there. We talked about the significance of the, the red ewe, the carnelian, this ruby red, the blood of Christ forever and ever. We talked about the significance of the, the emerald, uh, this iris. Uh, rainbow is often the way it's translated, but it's in the Greek language it's an iris, which means a, a, a full round circle. But this is interesting. It's not a rainbow with different colors. It's all green. It it represents something that is everlasting. And I look at that iris that John sees, this circle over the throne and around the throne of God. To me, it's like an eternal wedding ring. It's the oath of the covenant. It is, I promise to redeem you. I promise never to leave you. I love you with an everlasting love. And I really mean business. I will lay my own life down for you. So forever and ever, please understand this. The book of Revelation is filled with worship all through. And those who reject worship, you see you know, a great contrast. But you see a lot of worship in the presence of the Lord. But you also have this. Most of the worship, most of the time that John sees, is directly tied into redemption. We will be praising the Lord for the blood of Jesus Christ forever and ever. That will never grow old. It's the reason we are there. God himself took our place, stepped into our world. God who cannot die knew that death separates us from him. So he takes on human form. He becomes the God-man. He becomes, as we're going to see in just a few moments, the, the son of man out of Daniel chapter 7, this miraculous one the supernatural one who appears as a man the son of man and yet receives worship in heaven He's, he's got to be God, he's got to be divine, and yet he's a man. Who is this God-man? Well, forever and ever, we will remember why we're there in heaven. And to me, even the colors and this picture that John sees reminds us it's all about the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we're there. And then we saw that there were four living creatures, and and uh, just a reminder, and listen, if you, you want to drill down and look at different thoughts and different opinions on what these are, I cover that in the textbook. You can can look more deeply. We look at the, the, the words, the meanings that are there. We compare scripture with scripture. For tonight, suffice it to say, my opinion on this is that these are cherubim angels. Because that's what Ezekiel calls them. And they're described with the same face images. The same four images in the face Ezekiel sees the same when he sees a vision of heaven, and he calls them cherubim, highest-ranking angels. So why are these angels? Because we also know that there are myriads of angels all around. You're going to see that in chapter 5 in just a few moments. So what's unique about that? Well, God commissions angels. There are different rankings. The highest-ranking angels are these four living creatures that have the face, four different faces, what an ox, a lion, an eagle, and a human being. I think that they're angels, cherubim angels, that are commissioned by the Lord to represent all of the created world, everything in creation, including humanity, but all of the created world bringing worship back to God. And it says when they worship, these 24 elders that you see Uh, sitting on thrones around the throne, who are they? Um, My take is that John has a view into eternity, and they are human beings who are in their resurrected bodies who represent all of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. 12 and 12, that's why 24. There are some different thoughts on the 24. You can look that up in the text. As a matter of fact, some of the notes that I've given you already from last week. You can you can see some of the thoughts in that, okay? So I I want you to understand that you have these different entities, but what's so beautiful is when the four living creatures bring worship to the Lord, and, and what's described in, in Revelation 4 is that there are crescendos of worship. There are waves of worship. There's constant worship in heaven, but then he refers to when they lift their voices, they're like crescendos and waves of worship forever and ever. It's just like the thought just, I mean, I mean it's, you know, can you imagine when we're in heaven? The constant thought—we're not going to be limited by these human. I mean, we'll have bodies, but they'll be changed. They're not going to be limited with these these finite bodies and our minds. Paul says we're going to know even as we're known. We're going to understand things so much more greatly. And I think there's going to be a constant state of worship and love and passion after the things of God. But then it's almost like. Uh, And I remember it all over again. And waves of glory. And every time that happens, it says that those 24 elders that represent us, they fall on their face before God. And they take their crowns off and say, it's all about you. It's all about you. You blessed us. You honored us. God says there are are different crowns that are promised to his children. But we present those crowns back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop there because we're giving just a little bit of an overview. We come to chapter four. any specific questions from what we've already covered before we move into chapter five tonight and obviously we need to shift gears and really move. any questions all right let's do this let's do a reading starting with chapter five and you have notes. Um, I just know that if we if if we drill down with the notes that you have in hand and just read through this. We're only going to get through, you know, maybe two chapters. We need to get to about chapter 9 tonight to keep pace. So let's go to chapter 5. We're in heaven now, and now something very, very powerful happens. So I'm putting up on this screen the notes for chapter 5, but you have them in front. Everybody has notes, right? So let's go. Let's, Let's read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So here's the Father. The right hand to the Jewish mind always was a hand of favor and power. So the right hand that he's going to give something to the Lamb of God, Jesus, means he's entrusting him with power and favor. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and the one who sits upon the throne is the Father. Is God the Father? And it says uh, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, I go into a lot of detail in the printed notes you have in hand, but even more so in the book. I'm I'm just going to have to give overview. But I've got to tell you that this scroll, to me, it's the key. It is, if, if we don't understand what this scroll is, we miss most of the message of the book of Revelation. Because basically everything, now that John's in heaven, this is that third part of that. Remember the three-part table of contents, the things that are yet to come? This is it. It's, the things that are yet to come are inside the scroll. Um, this is not 2,000 years old, okay? This is probably about seven years old, and it's showing where already, but this is a little replica of of what a scroll in that day would have looked like, okay? And you have to understand the significance because everything else, all the way through chapter 22, is contained in this scroll. What is this scroll? Let's look at this, okay? And it says it's writing on both sides. The English Standard Version says on the outside and within, what does that mean? Well, that's unique. You've got to know that every word in the book of Revelation means something, and you don't want to just um, if, you, if you have the heart and the time to drill down on this, I urge you, take a second look. What does it mean that it's printed? What's that it's written on the inside and outside? You have to understand that in that day and I, I, I have to be careful not to get too technical but you would never write on the outside of the scroll not not public documents, you wouldn't. You would only write on the inside of the scroll. So why is this written on the outside as well as the inside? Well, it can refer to full judgment, that there's not enough on the inside to even cover all that God is going to do in bringing judgment. But there's something else that, that is, I think is important. Um, there were very, very rare cases where you would write on the outside of a scroll, You would also, on only rare cases, have a seven-sealed scroll. So look at this with me. With writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So, bottom line is this. There's only, as I studied this and I spent these several verses right here, I spent more time than any other portion in the book of Revelation because I had to understand what is a seven-sealed scroll. There was, in the first century, only one legal document within the Roman world, and that's even the Jewish people were under this Roman, Roman world, Roman influence. Um, and there was only one document uh, that, uh, uh, that would, would be requiring seven seals, would require seven seals, only certain last will and testaments. Last will and testaments were the only, as I've studied this, I couldn't find any other reference, and I tried to go back to ancient documents and so on, that I understand there is only one document that required seven, and this is, and I think you have it in the notes. Let me just point out. um, Just want to show you. I think I've included that here. Perhaps... Yes. If you look here from historical documents, we know that Roman law in John's day, so what page is that? It's um, somebody, what is it, 20? Page 20? Okay. Um, Typically, after a testator, that's the person who is testifying his will, after the testator wrote or had written for him his final will, he presented it to seven qualified male witnesses. Once they observed the will in the testator's own signature, these seven added their signatures as well. With that, they each pressed the seals of their signet rings into dollops of wax and maybe clay, placed upon the knots or the cords and strings together. These held the scroll closed and secure. That's what this symbolizes. They would take the scroll, they would tie it, and at the knots, they would put a dollop of clay or wax. And then you would have seven men who would testify to what they heard, and you would have a signet ring, it was called. And every person, they had their own unique ring that was made for them. Kings and and officials would have this, and they would press that into the seal bearing witness that we heard this man we're testifying that this is genuine authentic this is the will of this man but what was interesting in that day is they would write their names on the outside there's a clue here there's a clue as to why there would be writing on the inside and outside this is a last will and testament where witnesses sign their names. In other words, these seals begin to tell us the description of this seven-sealed scroll written on the outside begins to tell us that we're dealing with the last will and testament. Here's the bottom line, because I've got to just hit highlights. I believe that this is the will of the Father. In the full plan of redemption, which is in the mind of God from eternity past, We're going to see in Revelation 13 and verse 8, it says, the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundations of the earth. God already knew that we were going to sin against him, the entire human race. The curse would be here. Before the curse, he had the cure in the mind of the Lord. He already provided the Lamb of God for us. And so this scroll I call a scroll of redemption. This is God's plan to redeem everything that was lost through sin. This is the scroll that is God the Father's will through his Son to redeem, bring back, buy back everything that was forfeited through our sin. Okay? That's going to become evident as we move through this. As a matter of fact, let me hit this next. You have this again on page 20 following the idea of a last will and testament with the opening and actuating of God's will through the sacrifice of Jesus, All right, if this is a last will and testament that we see in the hand of the Father, what's going to be, the, the, the significance of this scroll is this. When he opens this scroll, what we're about to see in the book of Revelation, what is coming, Jesus said, write down what's coming. The false claimant Satan is exposed and destroyed. Somebody has stolen away the inheritance. Again, this is a last will and testament, which means God wills an inheritance for his people. God wants to bless his people, but the human race forfeited it because of sin. But there was an interloper. Somebody was used in the kingdom of darkness to deceive humanity, to bring us into this rebellion, and that was Satan. And in this scroll, we will see that God deals with Satan. You will see him thrown into the lake of fire. You will see, and, and you'll understand this as we move. And next week, I'm going to introduce you to some personalities. And there are seven different personalities. And there's what I call the unholy trinity. We have the holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you will be introduced to what some have called, and I get it, the unholy trinity. Satan himself, the dragon, the antichrist, this beast. And then there's a false prophet. And each of them are are usurping the authority of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, God has to deal with Satan, expose him, and destroy his power. That's part of what's in this scroll. But you also have the testator. Jesus is vindicated of this cosmic fraud against him. He, he conquers over. Sin has robbed us. Sin has, has been the, the greatest offense in the face of God. And Jesus is the one, as he rides back from heaven and we with him, he is vindicated over the kingdom of darkness. You will see that. Also, those who have forfeited their inheritance, true believers are forgiven and redeemed to God. We're going to see how that the blood of Christ, and we worship him forever and ever, we are redeemed. We forfeited our our inheritance. But Jesus, through his blood, brings us back. And true believers, we find forgiveness within the scroll and that God redeems his own people. And then also what you see is in all things once lost and ruined are restored to the rightful heir, as his kingdom fills the earth. By the time we get to chapter 20, and that will be in two weeks from now, we will see that Jesus comes back, we with him. He is the... And here, here's the thing. How do you, how do you inherit your own, your own will? Um, if, if you die, because you have to... Hebrews tells us that you have to have the death of the testator. I mean, you don't open a will. You don't give an inheritance until the person dies. How is it that Jesus, it's his will, how does he die and yet open the, open the seals? How does he claim the inheritance as the heir of all things and bring that inheritance to us because we're co-heirs? How does that happen? How does a dead man inherit? He's got to rise from the dead. And so what you will see as we move ahead in chapter 5, that he's not just the lamb who was slain to forgive us, but he also is resurrected from the dead to open his own will. He is, it's his will, but he's also the one who is the heir, the Bible says, the heir of the Father. We receive everything through Jesus, the heir, and we are co-heirs. There's so much to share here. Let's, let's move ahead. And I saw a mighty, verse 2, a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? There's something about this scroll. Who can open it? Who can release the content? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. To me, and I go into some depth with this in the book, this is the cry of humanity. Who's going to settle the score on this? We have lost everything because of sin. The world is in ruin. And John is, basically he's weeping for all of humanity. The cry is, who's going to deliver us from all the destruction that has come because of humanity's sin? And nobody can open this Nobody can do this except, let's go on, I wept and wept, and then in verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. Now we have a, we have a tie to the Davidic covenant. So in other words, all of scripture, remember this is the most Old Testament, New Testament book. This book of Revelation is so important because it weaves together all the themes The doctrines, the covenants of the word of God. Here you have the promise that was made through David. There's one who will reign on his line. That comes through. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And and it says, um, he is able to open the scroll. And it's seven seals, verse 5. And that's incredible. We come to that place. All right, somebody's going to open the scroll. So you get this anticipation that there's something in this scroll that's going to address and resolve the questions of the ages. All of the ruin, everything forfeited, lost because of sin, is going to be reversed once this scroll is open. But who can open it? Who can deal with this? The lion of the tribe of Judah to a Jewish mind, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. But what's so interesting is... And again, just hitting highlights here. You can drill down in the notes more. But he said, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns. That speaks of seven is a number of perfection. That speaks of the, the horns to the Jewish people referred to authority and power. And he has perfect authority. And then seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out. We've already seen twice the seven spirits. That doesn't mean seven Holy Spirits. It means the full ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, is directly um, related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, John says he has the Spirit of God without measure because he's God. Jesus, everything he does, he does under the anointing of the Spirit. Remember, I pointed out that Isaiah chapter eleven, verses one through three, points out a sevenfold anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the coming Messiah. That lines up with this. So, in other words, Jesus, who appears as a lamb, um, is also described as having the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's. Um, but what's so interesting here is he is introduced to a lion, but he sees the lamb. You have both the power and the majesty. Jesus is the conqueror, but you also have the wisdom of God. How does he conquer? He conquers in a way that nobody else. There's no other plan. Every world religion teaches that somehow you work your way to God or whatever is out there. This is the only way is in the wisdom of God where God himself knows that none of us, none of us can answer the questions. None of us can open this scroll. None of us can redeem ourselves. None of us have these answers. It is only through this one, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet, he's presented as one who dies because only death only death could co- could pay for our sin this is why i call this a, a scroll of redemption what's in this scroll represents the buying back the buying out we, we are redeemed we are we're brought back from everything that we forfeited through our sin through the blood of jesus christ any questions very very quickly anything that occurs to us we're just doing a flyover Let's let's keep going. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here's Jesus. He appears as a lamb. And he's slain because I happen to believe that forever and ever, and now we don't understand what this means. Will we, like John, see Jesus as one who is slain? What does that mean? Will we see the nail prints in his hands? No doubt. But... I think he's looking at him like a lamb. He's seeing him like a lamb appeared. And yet he's not, you know, he's, he's not dead. He's not inactive. It says he's standing there and he takes the lamb, takes the, the, the scroll out of the hand of the father. The father gives it to the lamb. In other words, he is, he is not a helpless victim. The fact that he died for us was not spoiling the plan it was fulfillment of the plan it's in the blood of christ that the victory is won can we follow that let's go on and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints the rest of this chapter and i don't have time to cover this verse by verse the notes in the book will cover this but the rest of the chapter is worship And it is worship that is all based in giving honor to Jesus as the Lamb because of his shed blood for us. But I want to show you something. I'm just going to hit another highlight that I think is important. Would you turn with me, please, to Daniel in chapter 7? Daniel chapter 7. I want to make a parallel, a connection here. I think this will help you. In Daniel chapter 7... You have this reference to, it's a a vision that Daniel has. Let's read just a few of these verses quickly. Daniel chapter 7. And verse 19, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. In other words, he looked human coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people's nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I think this is the same picture as Revelation chapter 5. I think what you see here, the Son of Man... And isn't it interesting that the, the title, the name that Jesus used for himself more than any other name was the Son of Man. And I don't think that was just identity with our humanness, although that's true. I think it was identity to this, this one who looks human and yet receives worship in heaven and is given all authority. I think what Daniel is saying is the very thing that John sees, the scroll that represents all authority, all power, the, the, the plan of the Father through his Son to redeem, bring back everything that was lost. And then you come to Revelation 11 and verse 15, and it says, all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, the anointed one. So in other words, I think Daniel is seeing the same thing. That's important. Because I want to take you over to Daniel chapter 12 for a moment, please. And look what he says here. He talks about, in, in chapter 12, and he takes us to the very last days. We're in the beginning of Daniel in chapter 12. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awaken to everlasting life. So in other words, it's coming a time. God says to Daniel, here's this revelation, okay? And at the end of time, God's going to deal with the nation of Israel. And it's going to be at the same time as the resurrection from the dead. So in other words, it takes it right to the very end, just like the book of Revelation. But look what it says next. Because there's a book that Daniel has been given to write in. But you, Daniel, close, in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 12, you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. I think that what Daniel sees here is that God is saying, there's something I have planned for humanity to redeem them. To bring back everything that was lost through sin. And I have a plan to deal with the nation of Israel. But seal it up right now. Seal it because it's not the time yet. Daniel, I'm giving you insights. I think what John sees is our day. I think that John sees the day when this scroll begins to open. I believe that Daniel is told it's not time yet. John is looking at a time in the future when the scroll, seal by seal, will be opened. I happen to believe that we're on the precipice of that. I think that there was a question. I saw somebody's hand. Yeah. Brother, did you have a question? Um, did, sir? D- did you have a No, okay. All right. Yes. What's the reference in Daniel 7? Daniel 7. Um, that was in verse... It starts with 13, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, all the way down through 14. Now, again, in the notes I go into more detail about this, but I just wanted to make that connection for you. Any further questions on this? We're going to move into chapter 6. So I want you to understand that there are seven seals. Now, this scroll is getting a little bit worn out. That's what happens when it's 1,900 years old. No, it's not. That. But, but it's supposed to have seven seals. So I want you to... I, I, I need you to get the... It's, it's a no-brainer. Seals are meant to keep you out. That's the key. The seals... There are seven witnesses to say, you can't go into this. We will tie this up. You cannot open this until the testator dies. But we're telling you by our signatures, and there's some evidence that they would actually write in the outside, this is the will of so-and-so. I think John's giving us the clue to what this is. He's telling us, uh, bringing us into that day. And remember, he's writing real time to people that would have understood what a seven-stilled scroll is. I think from the description that he gives, they would have known this is a last will and testament. But the idea is this. The seals are there to tell you, stay out until the proper time. That's all important here. One of the big questions that just... When it comes to prophecy, one of the, not just a question, but arguments and whole churches and, and you know, different fellowships, they fight over this. And you'll get, you'll get believers disagreeing upon the timing of the rapture and so on. And will, the, will the, the bride of Christ go through the tribulation? Part of that is addressed by the relevance of this scroll and the seven seals. So follow what I mean by that as we move ahead. Because once you come into chapter 6 now, and you have notes for chapter 6, so let me shift over. As you can see, we're just hitting highlights here. I don't have time to, to even read in detail. But let's just continue doing a reading. So let's go to chapter 6. Um, Back to Revelation. I was in Daniel. So Daniel, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 6. I watched now, so he's still in heaven, as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So this lamb who has been slain and yet is resurrected because he's the lion at the same time as the lamb. Both power and wisdom is seen. He's the one that opens. Only he has the authority because he shed his blood. Only he has the authority to bring back everything that was forfeited because of our sin. So he opens the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder. So I will tell you that in the first four seals that are broken and opened, the four living creatures that we saw in heaven, they are associated with this. When Jesus breaks it, you hear a voice and, and follow this, I heard one of the four living creatures say, and this is the cherubim with authority, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. So with the authority of the highest-ranking angel, there is a release, there is a revelation here of what's coming and the first is, and they're known as, could I have that picture, please, the next one. We have the, we have the lion there. Let's, let's move. Now, this is another picture of a seven-sealed scroll, okay, uh, a little bit more authentic. Um, let's go back. Do, you should have the, um, the four horsemen. Do you have that, chapter 6? Just to give us a, a picture of that, there's what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, this is often referred to and people don't even know what it represents. This is the picture, okay? This is a, a depiction of what we see. Um, even here, there's a lot of debate. So I want to take you, if you follow in the notes here, um, in this first... Yes, here we are. In this first horse, this first seal that is broken, and this first horse that comes riding out. it's a white horse, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Amongst Christians, there's a lot of debate as to who this is. I will tell you that my opinion is that this is the Antichrist that we'll be, we, will, we will be introduced to next week. He's one of the personalities in the book of Revelation. He is bent on conquering. But there are people that will say, no way. This is Jesus himself. Riding on a white horse, you see, you see Jesus in a white horse in chapter 19. It's got to be Jesus Well, this on page, help me with this, what page would it be? Is it 20? 25. On page 25, I tell you that riding on a white horse is where the similarity ends. Let me just, I, I think this is important to hit this. This rider that we see, this first horse that's represented with the breaking of the first seal, this rider is seen riding at the introduction of the event's, Within the scroll. In other words, before we ever get into the scroll, he's represented there writing. Jesus is riding at the very end of those events, the end of the tribulation. This is at the beginning of the tribulation. This one and a white horse comes riding in. A white horse, by the way, in that day always meant one who was a conqueror, one who was acknowledged, maybe a general or the emperor would ride in on a white horse. It'd be a white stallion. It was the sign of authority. Um, This rider, it says, held a bow. Look at this. It says its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. He holds a bow, but there's no arrow. And maybe that speaks of just partial conquest. He doesn't get away with everything he desires to do. He only has the bow but no arrow. Interestingly, Jesus in chapter 19, from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. You never see in the hand of Jesus in chapter 19 just a bow. The description of Jesus on a white horse is very, very different from this number look at the sect the third this rider was given a crown but we're told on Jesus head are many crowns okay this rider's crown is a stephanos that was known in that day as a wreath that would shrivel it, was, it would last for a few days. It was, it was the wreath of victory that we give to people who won a race. But that's not the name of the crown that Jesus wears. He's given a diadem, and that was a permanent crown that would last. Okay, You have a contrast there even with the crown uh, that this, 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 this one is riding, uh, wearing. This writer wrote out as a conqueror bent on conquest and is then followed by violence, Famine, plagues, and death throughout the earth. That's what he brings in. That's not what Jesus brings in. We have a di- very different description. Jesus comes to bring a quick end to rebellion and to inaugurate peace throughout the earth, not famine and plagues. That's not what Jesus is bringing. Okay, This writer, if you notice, is accompanied by three other writers, all of whom bring death and destruction. Jesus is seen when He comes riding back. It's the armies of heaven. It's you and I, and the angels. We are the ones that come riding back with the Lord Jesus, not three horrendous other other riders who bring devastation to the earth. Do you, do you follow the contrast here between these? Let's go just a little bit further. Um, this rider is name. Okay, no. This rider is contrasted with the three other horses of different colors. Those who ride with Jesus all follow Him on white horses. Over here, we have different color horses, all bringing devastation. The only horse it's spoken of along with Jesus are the white horses that we are riding with him. It's a very, very different picture. And finally, this rider is nameless, but Jesus carries the name faithful and true, the word of God and king of kings and lord of lords. I think that's important, okay, because those who deny that Um, that this is the antichrist they 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 would say that this is jesus they're not understanding that there is one who why would he ride a white horse because he's he is a counterfeit he is one who that's what antichrist means one who takes the place of or is opposed to and so there's coming one who will try to lead the world into deception who denies the, the ministry and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, tries to deceive the nations, um, and whereas Jesus will be given from the Father all authority and will all the kingdoms of this world will become his kingdom, okay? He will rule over this. Um, the, the Antichrist tries to take this by force. So what I see in the first white rider here, this first seal, is this. It is predictive of when this scroll opens... There is going to be one who rises to try to lead the world um, and and conquer the entire world. There's going to be, there's coming, and we'll be introduced to this one, the beast, the Antichrist next week, a one world dictator. A one world, I'm going to talk about the Babylon world system next week. And there is one who's coming to lead a Babylon world system. It's a one-world system that is described. Babylon is used here in the book of Revelation. And I think that it's the Antichrist who seeks to, um, he, he, he's going to lead the, 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 the nations of this world in that way. There's so much to be said here. Forgive me if I'm complicating and I'm trying to simplify this. Any specific questions here? Let's go to the second. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out. This one is a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword, even the very words that are used here, I, I, I point out, and sometimes it's helpful to do word studies, this is not the regular sword of a conqueror. This was the dagger. The word that's used here by John is it's a large dagger that was used by somebody who would bring insurrection or murder. That's what that dagger was used for in that day. It is not the picture of Jesus with a sword. That's a whole different sword coming out of his mouth, a double-edged sword, the word of God. This is the dagger of a murderer. That's what we see in the hands of this second. So in other words, you've got one, this first horse is one who wants to conquer the earth, control the earth, and we'll, we'll, that that will come together next week. He's going to lead the Babylon world system. But then you have one who is riding on this red horse, the second, and that has to do with war. And he's he's being there, there will be as Jesus said, the war and rumors of wars, but all this will culminate during the tribulation. Number verse five, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, and and you, you've got to know that this black horse represents death, uh, and and there's there's famine that takes place, and so you you have... You have the, this, this black horse, and he's holding scales. What is this about? He says, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Very, very interesting. That may not mean that much to us, but when you drill down the original language, in the economy of that day, it indicates, and I put this in the notes, about 1,200% inflation. Everything went up 12 times the cost of what it normally would be in that day. And yet, don't touch the oil and the wine. What does that mean? There will be an a, a ever-increasing gap between the wealthy and the poor. Don't, the oil and the wine is what the wealthy would still have in hand. And I, I think what it represents is that there's going to be power struggle. There's going to be massive hunger and death throughout the earth. Um, and man will have his way it's not going to be a pretty situation let's go to verse 7 when the lamb opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature say come and i looked and there before me was a pale horse its rider was named death and hades was followed close behind him and they were given this death and hades now death is the action of death separation spirit and body but hades is to, the, to that mind, Sheol in the, in the Hebrew language, Hades was, was the Greek way of understanding it. It's, it, it's the place of the dead. It, it's the place of disembodied spirits. It's where you go when you die. That's how they would have understood this. And in other words, Hades is placing its claim. It's going to, And how is it going to do that? They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. It is a picture, and I go into, again, a lot more details in the notes and even further in the book, but the idea is that there is massive loss of life, and when you have that kind of loss of life, then even the animal kingdom and the beast of the earth will thrive on the carcasses. That's the idea, that they will be killed. It is going to be this horrendous scene. Let's move to the fifth. When he opened the fifth seal, this is a very, very different picture. This is not judgment anymore. As a matter of fact, these first four seals, I know that the hand of God is directly involved because it's in the will of God. It's within the scroll, the last will and testament. It's given by the Father to the Son, so you know that the Father's in charge. And yet I look at the, for those first four, these writers, and it's like this is the earth gone wild. This is the natural consequence of rejecting the Lord. This is what happens when humanity has its way and refuses the authority of God in our lives. This is the natural and the supernatural outcome of rebellion against God. Can I put it that way? We will see once the scroll opens that God will do supernatural things to bring judgment. But there's this element here as well. That when you harden your heart and all of humanity sins and rebels and has a clenched fist in the face of God, this is the outcome. You're going to have, uh, you know, this. This. this you're going to have wars. You're going to have people that that uh, push others down, and there's and, and there's and and death. But it is it is like you know, to me. It's the way to describe it is the world gone wild, because we are choosing. Uh, to 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 be out of the protection of the Lord as a planet, as, as a citizenship, yes. So first four seals are cracked. Yes. The first four, four first four seals. Yes. When I always read it, and I could be a wrong on it, so now was this this was God releasing this. Okay. Yes. However, I want to emphasize something. Because they're being released, but here's the point. The scroll scroll hasn't opened yet. This is the key. What you're going to hear me say as we move through this, and this is the key, seals were meant to keep you out. What you're saying is, is right. It's a release, but it is the seals are on the outside. They're not on the inside. The seals are like the preface of a book. The seals are like you haven't gotten into the book yet because how many know you have to break all seven seals in order for the scroll to open? That's important to get. The seals are meant to keep you out. So what is the relevance of these first four? They are predictive of what's coming. They are a panoramic view of what's coming. This is important. I I need to highlight these seals, but... I quickly need to move ahead because the bottom line is the scroll hasn't opened yet. This is like the preface to tell you this is what's inside. This is like the trailer of a movie kind of a thing. This is because what you notice, these are general descriptions. Once the scroll opens, you've got details. Once the scroll opens and the trumpets and the bowls, you've got details one-third of the Earth it killed, one-third of the sea life, and so on and so on. This is more general of uh, a thirst for control, plagues, death, um, uh, inflation, you know, just hunger and, and poverty and so on. All of that are general descriptions of what's coming, but the scroll hasn't opened yet. Let's follow to the next, the fifth seal. So now he tells us, okay, not just judgment, but I saw souls under the altar. The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Now, again, so much to be discussed in this, but let me cut to the quick. This has to do with what's in the scroll. Once the scroll opens, this is predictive. I happen to think that there is strong reason to believe that these are the tribulation saints. These under the altar are those during the time of what will be revealed inside this scroll, during the time of seven years of tribulation. These are the people who are turning to the Lord and dying for their faith. And they're crying out under the altar. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it says they're souls, which means they're not resurrected. If you, and you will have this in the notes under this verse, no doubt there is Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. If you go to that verse in the notes, you'll find Revelation 24. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, these very souls come to life. Now, there's no soul sleep. When you die, your soul continues. These people are praying. They're talking. They're crying out to God. They're very, very much alive, but they don't have a body. They don't have a body until the end of the tribulation. That's important to understand. They are seen under the altar. And I believe that altar is a picture. As a matter of fact, you have Paul, for instance, saying, my life is being poured out as an offering. Remember this? Like a sacrifice. That's the idea. They're not paying for their sins. That's not, you know, they're not paying for their own redeeming themselves. That's not the, they are laying their lives down for the cause of Christ. And in that way, they're identifying with the Lord Jesus. They're not loving their life even unto death. That's why, but it's important to see that during the tribulation, because it all relates to what's inside the scroll, there will be those who are crying out, how long? And the Lord says, there are others who need to die as well. And when that full number takes place, then you'll be vindicated. But if you compare it, chapter 20 and verse 4 sees these same people on their resurrection day. You follow that? That is important when we get to chapter 7. So let's keep, let's keep building up to that. Follow with me as we go. All right? And then I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of, uh, made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth. As, as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, and the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Look at the language of this. This is total, total devastation of planet Earth. This is important. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to simplify things that should take hours for us to look at, but I'm just going to give you this as simplistically as I can. This is the major reason why I believe that these seven seals and the six that we're reading right now, because actually you don't even have anything associated with the seventh seal except the opening of the scroll. The seventh seal is actually the opening of the scroll. The six seals, I believe, are a panoramic, vivid view of what's coming. Why do I think that? Well, part of it is the sixth seal. I've had a lot of people say, "Oh no, I think that the six seals are like the first three and a half years," or "I think that the six seals are the time of uh, of um, that." That's the beginning of sorrows. I happen to think right now, real time. I think that we're in the beginning of sorrows. You don't see this right now, not in this massive scale. If, if like some people say, and I I have even heard. I've heard mid tribbers, those that believe that the church will go through part of the tribulation, halfway through, and so on. And they'll use this argument and say, No, you've got to, you, you, you don't even see the church in chapter seven until you, you've already gone through six seals. And I say, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, Jesus comes back at a time when everything is peace and safety. How do you associate total devastation of the earth by the sixth seal with everything's cool? government's got it, peace and safety, everybody says. Do you follow what I'm saying? The sixth seal correlates. It's like this v- overview of seven years of time. And the sixth seal, what does it mean that stars are falling? Listen, if, if one star, we are like a grain of sand compared to the size of a star. So we're not talking a star like we think of stars. The Greek word can mean anything that is flung. It has the idea of something flung. In the minds of people, that could be comets, that could be asteroids. I think in the last days towards the end of the tribulation, I think we're talking meteorite showers. I, th- I think we're talking total devastation. But islands are mo- moving. Mountains are falling. It-, it is total devastation. But the point is this. That cannot be until the very end of the tribulation. It cannot be halfway through because there's nothing left of planet Earth. If you go to Isaiah 24, may just make a note and read it on your own. It's pictured. As a matter of fact, the language that John uses, this Earth is rolled up like a scroll, um, that like figs falling from a tree. All of that language you'll find in Isaiah, you'll find in Amos, you'll find in in different prophets. And they're all looking to the very end of time. I, and here's, here's the major point. Here's the takeaway before we get into chapter 7. This to me is, is, is integral to understanding this and the timing of the church being raptured. Before the church is seen in heaven in chapter 7, you have a description a six-fold description of what's coming. You follow that? But it cannot be real time because the earth by the end of it is already destroyed. Only Jesus coming back and renovating the earth for the millennial reign can, can you know, salvage this earth. It's, it's totally devastated. You follow what I'm saying? Now, brother, I saw your hand. Do you want to? Yes, Please. Okay. All right. So, this is the key, and that's what I'm going to hit next. I believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation. Okay? I believe that. Now, I believe it's at the end. Um, It's going to be... So, we're heading into... Let me... um, My apology. There's just so much. If you look at the end of chapter 6 notes... I think I allude to this, um, you know, no, it's in chapter 8 notes, right at the end of chapter 8. Do you see at the very end I put a note about WordQuest? Do you, is, that, is that in there? If you look at the very last page, it would be the end of chapter... No, no, forgive me. I, I think I gave you through 9. Is it the end? My apology. Can I... I want you to see there is another document... pastor I can share it's on page 37 at the end if you look in page 37 I'm going to provide this um, pastor Jeff however you want to make this available I'll send it as a pdf file Um, this question is asked all the time when is the rapture of the church the catching away to be with the Lord I'm telling you as what I'm seeing in the book of Revelation my my viewpoint but this document that i referred to at the end of 37 um word quest this is uh, years ago i felt i, I you know I, I need to be able this was when i was at calvary temple pastoring we wanted to uh, bottom line i i felt that people needed to learn the 16 foundational truths of our fellowship and so it's a workbook it's about 100 pages of workbook on the 16 foundational truth the 13th truth is called the blessed hope in that study, there were three pages of why, biblical reasons. There were ten reasons, and there were others, but I summarized ten reasons why I hold to a pre-trib rapture. One of the big reasons is this: you and and this is where we're going next. You don't see the church in heaven until after this. This, the, the, but oh, let's put it this. Before the opening of the scroll, let me put it that way the other way. Before the opening of the scroll, before the seventh seal is broken, we're about to see the church in heaven. Chapter seven comes before chapter eight. Chapter seven with the church in heaven is seen before the events of chapter eight, and chapter eight is when the seventh seal is broken. A reminder. You don't go into the scroll until all seven seals are broken. They're meant to keep you out. Interestingly, the Lord shows his church before his throne out of every nation before the scroll is opened. That's one of the ten reasons. Another reason is this. And I don't have time to teach this, but I will make this document available. Pastor, I'll send it to you. And however, if you want to copy it or send it a PDF file, if people want to ask, you're welcome to look and you can study through. It's just more than we have time to cover tonight or in these five weeks. But I also look at it this way. Most people that see the church going through the tribulation don't understand the relevance of the tribulation. The tribulation, and we're going to see it in the notes yet, No one even want to know what time it is because we have a lot to cover yet tonight. But the tribulation, first and foremost, is a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. I've said it before. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah on steroids. And most people have no problem with Sodom and Gomorrah. God had had it. He's going to wipe them out. He's got to take Lot and his wife and children out. And then it says that that God destroyed. Why? Because it's wicked. There was nobody righteous. That's this. God is saying, I will not contend with man anymore. I've had it. He calls his bride out because he's now going to destroy. He has to, through the scroll of redemption, he's got to cleanse the earth of its sin and punish all the inhabitants of the earth. Do you remember chapter 3 and verse 10? Remember that note for the church in Philadelphia? Those who overcome, I will keep out of the trial that's coming upon the whole earth. Remember that? It says to all the inhabitants of the earth, there's coming a trial on the entire earth because of their wickedness. God says, I will keep you. The word is ek, out of the tribulation that's coming. You also have verses like 1 Thessalonians, and all this will be in this document. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 is in the context of the return of the Lord, and he says, we are not appointed to wrath. Most people don't understand that the major purpose of the tribulation is the wrath of God. Ten times, two different words are used, ten times to describe what God does in planet earth, the wrath of God. It describes a boiling up, God has had it. He has had it with the wickedness of planet Earth. He's going to destroy the inhabitants of the Earth because of their wickedness. But he keeps sending every time. He's trying to call people to repentance, and it keeps saying, and yet they curse the God of heaven, and they refuse to repent. So that's the picture on planet Earth. Will people be getting saved? Absolutely. Those are the souls that are under the altar, okay? Because we all have some relatives that when you're not here and you're taken to be with the Lord, they're going to say, I heard about this thing. And they're going to give second thought to this. And some of them are backslidden Christians who are not walking with the Lord. You follow this? So Now, I, I, I need to go on to chapter 7, but very, very quickly. Uh, question. How can they qu- saved if the Holy Spirit has gone every Okay, the Holy Spirit hasn't gone. And I know I Second know Thessalonians, he who is restraining okay but here's the thing i believe it's the ministry of the holy spirit through the church now there's a lot that can be said here but i do not believe that the holy spirit can leave anywhere john you know uh, david says in psalm 139 where can i go from your presence everywhere his presence will even be in Sheol, in hades the presence of his judgment will be there But I believe that the Holy Spirit will still be ministering, but not through the body of Christ. See, we are that. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church that's holding back. As wicked as things are right now, as crazy as things are right now, what do you think is going to happen when the salt and light is not here anymore? See, that's the picture. We are salt. We are light. We're holding back that full decay. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit's removed. As a matter of fact, you have have indication of this. We won't have time to look at Revelation 11, but you have two witnesses that are ministering. How are they witnessing? Except by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's ministry is still here in the earth, but it's not through the corporate body of believers anymore. And I believe that's who Paul is referring to as that which restrains. I think it's the church as the salt and light. And, and, and it's the Holy Spirit's ministry through the church, but it's not that the Holy Spirit will be removed altogether. So, excellent question. Um, okay. Did you, did you... Yes. Yes. I think they're the martyrs during the tribulation because they're directly related to what's in the scroll. Remember, the seals are referring. The outside, the seal, is testifying to what's inside. I think that these are the people who are dying during the content of the scroll. I think they're the tribulation saints. Now, let's let's build up to this. We come to chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, I go into this in the notes. That doesn't mean that the Bible is not scientific. Um, scientists still talk about the sun coming up in the morning, and the sun doesn't come up in the morning. It, it's, a, it's a poetic way of talking about north, south, east, and west. Okay? That's how they would talk, when it talks about the four corners of the earth. That's all it refers to is the four points of the, of the compass, holding back the four winds, Okay, then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, there was an image, if we could go, Pastor Matt, to that next one. It's sort of a depiction of how that this angel, uh, before this, where you have the angel bringing the seals upon the heads of, uh, should be there, chapter 7. This is actually chapter 8, so it would be before this. You had the image up there before. So, and it's fine. Let's read it. Then I saw another angel, and he's bringing a seal. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line because we don't, that's actually before this. It's the one where, that's the one. Uh, Next one, please. There we go. All right, so there's its angel. What does it mean that he's sealing people in the forehead, okay? You have to understand that just like putting a seal on a document speaks of authenticity, um, but it also speaks of protection, okay? It speaks of belonging, genuineness. Um, when you would put, in that day, they would even put a baker in Israel in the first century, would put a a sign into bread in that day to say, this bread comes from this bakery, okay? Uh, It was something that they did, because a seal to people meant, this is genuine, you know where it came from. This is saying that God is putting his seal of ownership and protection on how many people? 144,000. Is that a literal number? I tend to think that it's not. And that's not heresy. You have to understand apocalyptic literature used codes, used numbers. Just like the number seven, a number of completion, represents not just seven local churches, it represents all. I think that the 144,000 is 12 times 12,000. You have that in the text. Just like seven, the number 12 was a number of completion. I think what it means is this. God has an appointment with the nation of Israel. And I believe this with all of my heart. Do you realize today Israel is not right with God? Um, I love Jewish people as I love Palestinians and Muslims. I love people, okay? And Jesus loves people. Um, But I will tell you right now, the nation of Israel is hardened against the things of God. I've been there several times. I remember speaking with a, a man who was a very high-ranking official, and he addressed us, and, he, and he, he has accepted the Lord. He said 80% of Israel, of Jews that is in Israel, 80% are not practicing their faith at all. They're agnostics, they're atheists, or not observing Judaism at all. 80% of Jews in Israel what is it going to take to turn them if you look at zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 it shows in the last days and the context is a day when god calls the nations against israel so you know that's never happened the whole world has not gathered at israel's doorstep remember jesus said for israel it'll be worse in that day than it ever had been before or ever will be again in zechariah 12:10 in that context it says that god will give israel a spirit of supplication and grace how is he going to do that? This is what's known, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 6, as the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a time when God allows the nation to be so chastised that there's, he draws the line. And, and a major part of Israel will fall away and will come under the judgment just like the rest of the world. But the nation itself, God has an appointment with. Okay? And... um. I believe that what you see in the first part of chapter 7 is God's, it's his way of saying, I have sealed a remnant to myself. A remnant of Israel will turn to me. I will seal them. I put my, my stamp of ownership upon them. And it says, it uses the word servants. What does that mean? I happen to think, and I'm trying to compare scripture with scripture. The Bible, Old Testament, says that Israel will be a light to the Gentiles. When has Israel, as a nation, been a light to the Gentiles? They have never fulfilled that calling. I believe that during the tribulation, when the nation is brought to its knees, there will be a remnant of Israel, of Jewish people that will cry out to God. I believe that when it says that they're servants, they're going to be as evangelists. This this is a sister you asked about the Holy Spirit. This is another way where you know that the Holy Spirit will be working through these Jews who are getting right with God. They're a remnant and they're serving the Lord by becoming a light to the Gentiles. That's what I see. But then you see a very, very different picture. So I've got to I've just got to summarize. But then you come to the second part of chapter 7. In the notes, I talk about two great groups, right? Um, We're in chapter 7 notes. I'm sorry, we're flying here. So let me go to these next notes. Chapter The two great multitudes. The first are the 144,000. I happen to think that it represents the full number. 12 times 12,000. You've got 12 tribes listed. There's a lot more to be said in there. Why isn't the tribe Dan in there? I go into some detail in the notes. All right. Actually, not even in your notes. It's more in the book. Why wouldn't Dan's name be in there? Interesting. If you go back to the allotment of territory, and I happen to be reading in my devotions right now the book of Judges, Dan forfeited their territory. They did it an and run and did not accept. And this may be God's way of saying you forfeited on earth. You forfeited in heaven you've lost out. As a matter of fact, Dan was also the first tribe to lead Israel into idolatry, and they were known for wickedness and sexual immorality. So it might be a signal. So again, I don't have time to cover those fine details, but as you study, it's very interesting. But I, th- after you see Israel... After you see the remnant, now we've got to read this. Okay, now this gets very, very exciting. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then you have this incredible uh, worship service in heaven. Here's the point. And I've got to summarize. John makes it very, very clear that there is a huge distinction. Can we go to the next picture, please, of the great multitude? Yes, there's a great difference between this multitude nobody could number And they're standing before their throne. They have palm branches in their hands, which seems to to indicate they've got hands. They've got a body. Palm branches was what you you would wave that to a conqueror, to give honor to a conqueror. We have won, they're saying. It is a very different picture than a limited group of souls underneath an altar crying out how long. A lot of people, and I go into detail in the notes, I'm just giving you a a flyover here. I think that this is the raptured church. I think this is the first view of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, standing before the throne of God. They are seen from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. They are without number. They are redeemed. They are in their glorified bodies. They are not the same. I've heard so many people say, oh, these are the people that are dying on planet Earth. And, and you see, there are a lot of pre-trib people. And part of the reason that sometimes people reject this idea of the, of the church being raptured before the tribulation is that we have forced some things that are just not biblical. I've heard a lot of people teach, oh, Revelation 4, verse 1, when John was called up, that's symbolic of the rapture. Why? Because they've got to put the rapture before the seals. No, you don't. Not when you understand the relevance of the scroll. Not when you understand that the seals are a view of what's coming. Then you can see that before the scroll, remember, we've only looked at six seals so far. Before the scroll opens, before the seventh seal is broken, the whole body of Christ is standing in his presence. In glorified bodies. This is not the tribulation saints, because the tribulation saints are the souls haven't been resurrected yet until, Je- until Revelation 20 and verse 4. You Follow this. They don't have their resurrection day until we come back with Jesus. So at the end of the tribulation, they're seen a limited amount during the tribulation being killed for their faith that they've come to know Jesus. That's a very different scene from a crowd without number from all the world. Do you follow what I'm saying now? Now, let's go on. Chapter 8. Oh, do, do not look at your watch, please. Don't do it. Don't do it. We're almost, we're, we're almost there. When he opened the seventh seal, boom, drum roll. There it is. Everything shifts now. I'm just going to summarize in these last few moments. You don't have the scroll opening until chapter 8. It's a no-brainer, but chapter 7 comes before chapter 8. The church before the throne of God comes before the seventh seal is opened. The seventh seal opening has no description with it except what follows, and that's seven trumpets. So in other words, let's, let's read it. You'll, you'll get the in other words as I read he opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Why? Now, there's no time in heaven. But what John is saying is from his perspective, for some time, it just, everything. Now, there's, it's never quiet in heaven, is it? There's always worship. Everywhere else you read about worship. I believe what's happening here is there's a holy hush. I believe That everything that was predicted on the outside of the scroll, this is what's coming. Be warned. This is what's coming. General descriptions. A world gone wild. There will be those who suffer because they're going to turn to the Lord. And then finally, the entire earth is devastated. Cataclysmic things on the level of what Isaiah... If you read Isaiah chapter 24, it says, and few survive... A lot of people think, oh, the church, we'll just be, we're just going to have, you know, we're going to take over the world, and we're going to be really, really refined, you know. How does that square with Isaiah saying, and there are very few people that actually survive? It doesn't fit. This is a time of total devastation. But that's inside the scroll. So what does this mean? John sees the seventh seal broken, the scroll opens, and nobody can say a word. Because everything that was described broadly future it's coming beware is now seen in detail openly and angels and redeemed humanity can't say a word there's silence we're dumbstruck there is to me there is no other purpose indication by this holy hush this silence in heaven and I saw the seven angels, so we can go ahead with that. Seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. I do not have time to go through in detail. Uh, next week, this is what we're going to have to do. I'm going to have to skip over the seven, the seven trumpets. But if, you, if we could just advance, Pastor Matt, to the next slide. If you look, and I would ask you, read through this on your own. There are seven detailed judgments. I believe that these seven trumpets are during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Next week, you're going to be introduced to personalities, seven personalities, Michael the archangel, a beast out of the water, a second beast out of the land. That's very interesting itself. Why one out of the water? Why one out of the land? It'll make sense. Um. You've got a a woman riding in the back of a beast, of the beast. What is all of this? There are seven personalities. I happen to believe that in the first three and a half years, while this is going on, the government steps up. The government's got all the answers. This is getting crazy on planet Earth. A third of everything. Grass, green grass, and one-third of the trees are burned up. One-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of waters turn bitter. One-third of the sun, moon, and stars do not show. So there's there's darkness. Locusts wield the beast military. 200 million man army. That's interesting in itself, okay? Uh, In that day, there weren't 200 million people living on planet Earth. There has to be a measure of... Uh, It it is real. I don't want to say more than I can expound on here. A hundred million in the Greek language was the highest number in the Greek language. This is two times that amount. It may not be that John is is saying there will be exactly 200 million soldiers on horses. There's another problem. There are not 200 million horses on planet Earth right now. Okay? You you follow what I'm saying? I think what John is saying in the language of the apocalyptic is two times the highest number that you could ever count. There will be so many soldiers coming up against Israel in that day. The forces will be coming up against them. And all of that is part of this. In the first three and a half years, you have there's just so much to cover in this. You you have the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel for seven years. You've got the, you've got the, the, the woman riding, and I'm going to talk about this next week, riding in the back of the beast. That's the one world religious system thinking that it's controlling the government. Religious system thinking, we're in charge. And then the beast, Revelation 17, uh, I'm sorry, 17 and verse 14, turns and devours the woman. In other words, the beast says no. Halfway through, halfway through is just like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this, this Antichrist, this one who usurps the authority of God, will say no, no Jews are going to worship. Is it no Muslims? Are gonna, I will get all the worship. And it says that he will sit in the temple, usurping, demanding the authority and the worship of God. That happens. But in order for that to happen, this is all going on for the first three and a half years. There is so much devastation that people are going to turn to the government and say, "You got to rescue us. This is craziness." And the government has so much power, but then turns on everything religious. Okay, so much to say here. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll take this further. I need you to read chapters 8 and 9 with the notes. Chapters 10 and 11, I'm just going to allude to next week. But we're going to, we're going to start with chapter 12 next week. Because 12, 13, 14 begins to show you these seven different personalities and you have to understand that to get the balance of the book of Revelation and then the two weeks from tonight we'll talk about the millennial reign of Christ and heaven itself okay pastor I've gone way I've gone way over (laughs) I am so excited excited because you said I can't wait for next week because you said you're going to introduce us to the Antichrist I'm just wondering his name yeah, you said you're going to introduce us to the Antichrist, and I'm like, I wonder, I wonder who he's going to name, you know, and you're probably going through, you know, so, uh, yeah, and, and that white horse, I was trying to look at the face to see whose face it was, but, uh, hey, hasn't this been awesome? Oh, my goodness.